welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching, learning, community, conversation, and your digital life. Made for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast in Tecumloops Te Sequepum within the unceded traditional lands of Sequepum Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. This week, I'm thinking a lot about putting projects to bed in a good way, uh, not in quite so much of the overwhelm that I talked about last week. <laughs> Let's get into it. reason this week to spend time thinking about perception, about how sometimes when an experience ends badly, it colors everything that we thought about it in the lead up. You know, like it's hard to look back on, I don't know, say you have a bad experience at a conference and maybe the rest of the conference was great, but your paper wasn't well received. It's hard to feel good about all the good stuff at the conference when you're carrying around this baggage about how your own paper was received. You know, it's just, I think perceptually, we have a hard time teasing apart the good and the bad until we have a fair amount of distance. There's a bunch of reasons why I've been thinking about that today, not all of which I'm going to get into, but I am thinking about perception in relation to that feeling of putting projects to bed as I finally near the end of the beginning <laughs> of my shirk podcasting process. By the time you hear this, all of my episodes, all 14 episodes of my podcast, Community of Praxis, that will be going through a peer review process, will be in the hands of the project team, I hope. Maybe by the time you hear this, it will be almost in the hands of the project team, but I'm so close that I can't help but spend a little bit of time ruminating. This project has genuinely been really hard for me. I've loved all the component parts of it, but putting it together and getting it across the finish line that's been hard. Regular listeners to the show will know that I've I've had a time. <laughs> you know, I've had personal illness, family illnesses, a whole bunch of circumstances that seem to have conspired over the last little while to make everything feel impossible. And I'm thinking about perception because I'm thinking about the ways in which I'm coming to the close of the first stage of this project. Of course, peer review is going to be like a whole other stage. Stay tuned for those rantings later. But I'm feeling so good <laughs> about the end result that it's starting to shift my perceptions of the work on the project as a whole. Because for a long time, my inability to achieve deadlines and the fact that things were taking me so long was really coloring my appreciation of the work itself. Right now, I feel really good about it. Six months ago, I really didn't. <laughs> it's something that I try to keep in mind with academic work all the time because it's so easy to wrap my identity up in the projects that I'm working on when my feelings about them are really so transient, I guess. And maybe that's something we should be talking to students about too, right? Not seeing their whole identity wrapped up in a numerical grade. Like, friggin' easier said than done. <laughs> Two people who know a lot about how students experience learning are my pals, Marie and Steven, two of the instructional designers here in open learning. I wanted them to come in and just talk to me about the process of creating courses as a way of thinking about how we can do that work better, all of us, whatever kind of course we work on. I'm going to let Marie and Steven take it from here. 
So I am here today with two of Open Learning's instructional designers, Marie Bartlett and Stephen Doubt. Um, Marie and Stephen, can you guys introduce yourselves? Maybe I'll start with you, Marie. Hello, everybody. My name is Marie Bartlett, and I'm an instructional designer in Open Learning. I have been working in distance education and online environments for about 16 years, and I also really enjoy visual arts. So as well as instructional design, I do incorporate visuality and multimedia into my work as much as possible. Cool. Thank you, Marie. Stephen? Hi, I'm Stephen Doubt. I'm also an instructional designer and I actually, my office is two doors down from Marie's here in the Open Learning Building. In my background, I am a, was a long time high school teacher, specifically high school English in many different places in Canada and sort of around the world. Um, and I think almost I consider myself, when we talk about terminology sometimes, as learning designer in terms of we're thinking more about the learner than the instructor sometimes when we're designing courses. And I think that's something that defines what we try do in open learning. Okay, so I really like that. And it also segues very nicely into where I wanted to start the conversation today. So sometimes I feel like the way the coordinators of educational technologies sort of interface with campus, sometimes I feel like we're kind of like instructional designers light. We're doing an awful lot of advising on course design within the Moodle space, but that's not really our expertise or where we kind of come to, to the technology from. And so I've kind of long thought about sitting down with you guys and talking a little bit about what it is in instructional designers do, and then thinking about how we can kind of apply some of your knowledge to more of what happens on campus with courses. So I'm going to start in this kind of open-ended way and invite you both to speak to this idea that Stevens just opened up, which is learning design or instructional design. Like, what is it? I think what, I mean, what you speak of is like, you know, during the first year of the pandemic, we worked a little bit more as a as a team with, you know, the learning design group. And I think both Marie and I had the opportunity to work with people on faculty who are, you know, having to pivot their face-to-face courses to online and helping support that kind of Moodle design. And I think that was very helpful. And those conversations were wonderful. And I think that there is lots of opportunity for that. In terms of what it is, I feel like this is something I always struggle with. You know, people not in education, my friends ask what my job is, and I'll start to describe it. And then someone who's and you'll say, yeah, 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 you make websites. Yeah, kind of design websites. That's exactly what I do. Um, I don't know, Marie, how, how would you... What do you think about that? That is super funny. It is very difficult to describe to people what we do. It's funny because websites do come up and or graphic design for me anyway, because it's a designing kind of. And I think that design is actually the key word there because a lot of what we do, or at least uh, in my practice, I we plan. So we plan for the student experience, for the learning experience. And you mentioned the pandemic. It's really important to recognize that a fully online course, synchronous or asynchronous, is different than using uh, learning spaces, online spaces to support face-to-face instruction. So I think that the first steps that we engage in with the subject matter experts that are facilitating or teaching the course is about what it's going to look like. Is it, you know, uh, an experience that's fully online? Is it an experience that's on campus 
and online. And as Stephen mentioned before, the plan is to really have the students in mind. I always kind of think if I was a student and this was the course that I was taking, what would it feel like? How is it organized? What are my movements throughout that space and time? I really like that. And I, I come to this conversation with my own background, which was, you know, I spent nine years as a classroom teacher in post-secondary and we don't know anything often when we come to that space, right? We're subject matter experts. And then we get put into a classroom and we get put into a classroom where there is like an obsessive focus on content and coverage, right? Like that's what you learn when you first get a university class. It's like, here's what needs to be covered. And very little conversation about, you know, here's what the learner experience should be. Maybe now in this moment, you get a gesture towards course objectives. I certainly didn't when I first started teaching. And so I think oftentimes design from a face-to-face in-class experience starts at content. Like, how am I going to get all this content into these 12 weeks or these 13 weeks? That was one of the things that I wanted to mention when I was thinking about what to speak about today is content. Because that's the first thing, as you said, that everybody thinks of. And there's so much of it. And it's so overwhelming. And I think that the fire hose of information and content that we do have available now everywhere is burning everybody out. And this is kind of, you know, you can think about it as lecture, but that is a little bit more personalized in the classroom space. So the teacher puts in jokes, they explain the content in different ways, in a way that it's a relatable kind of content or the information is relatable to the learner. In an online space, if you only focus on content, it's so overwhelming. So I often think about designing courses and the student experience as having different colored Lego blocks and making sure that the content is relevant and simple. That is, you know, the information that if somebody wants to dig deeper, they can go to the library, they can, depending on what the activities are structured as, they can pursue further. So you have this one colored Lego brick, that's the content, but the another Lego brick is activity. So what is the student actually doing? So the content is the student kind of getting the information, whether it's in verbal form, in a lecture, video, or readings. Activity kind of Lego blah is what really is interesting to us as instructional designers, I think that Steve, uh, knowing Steve, would agree. And that's uh, that's where we really get excited. I feel like, Marie, I wish that you'd shared this Lego metaphor with me earlier. I see myself like bringing pieces of Lego onto my desk and I can visually build courses. It's brilliant. I do want to back up just a little bit, though, Brenda, because I, I know what you're saying and that, yes, people are sometimes, you know, come out of a PhD into the classroom or, or earlier and... They're kind of dropped off the deep end. But I hear a lot about, you know, the lack of training for profs globally. And I will say that it doesn't necessarily reflect the experience of the people that I work with. I'm actually often astounded at the level of understanding and experience that some of the people I work with do have in terms of designing assessments and chunking up the information. And that maybe, you know, partly through the piece of training, maybe through scholarship of teaching and learning participation, maybe through the Kelt office here, maybe through different PD opportunities and just through experience of teaching, people are incredible that I, that I design courses with. It's a real balancing act in terms of how much support people need and how much you need to just get out of the way and how much people need a specifically designed template or not, or need to have conversations every two weeks or not, because the breadth of knowledge and understanding about the education and pedagogy component of what they're doing in the classroom, what they're bringing to, in this case, a distance learning course is incredible. I don't know if you guys have read Kate Denial's Pedagogy of Kindness essay. One of the things that she talks about, I think I've brought 
it up on this show like 900 times. So bear with me, listeners. But one of the things she talks about in that essay is being asked to justify her pedagogy for the first time. So for the first time in her career, somebody asks her like, why do you do what you do in the classroom? And she's sort of at first baffled by the question. And it leads her on this journey that takes her to theorizing out of a pedagogy of kindness. But it kind of gets at some of what you're describing, Stephen, which is there are resources that you can go and look to for learning design support. And there's also a lot that you learn honestly by failing (laughs) in the classroom or by not seeing students succeed and adapting and like trying to figure out what will work for a certain student population. I think when I first started teaching, I was an excellent lecturer because I was a drama kid and I really liked attention. Um, So it was a good fit for me, but I'm not sure I became a good teacher until I started to figure out the design piece. So that takes me to the question of when you guys approach a course, I don't actually, despite having worked alongside y'all for like three plus years now, I don't actually know how the process of course design works, but does it start from content? This is what we have to cover. Does it start from here are the learning objectives? Like where do you guys start when you have to build a course? It starts from, yes, course description and learning outcomes. And really I, I generally ask the question, okay, like what do students need what is the important information in this course that students need to know at the end or skill or like what do they need to be able to do when they're done this and then we're you know working backwards how are we going to how are you going to know right how are you going to assess that skill or knowledge or understanding and then okay what about next 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 and then mapping it to the outcomes and then you know the first thing is quite a long process of putting together a very detailed blueprint. And I think one of the differences between designing these distance learning courses and putting together an outline for your classroom is it has to be much more detailed because it is much more permanent and you don't have the liberty of, during the class, providing secondary supports or making changes or changing on the fly. And that's one of the things that course writers or developers struggle with a little bit is that permanence. And that is a very different experience than being in the classroom and going in with a loose plan. You also don't have the liberty to see the immediate feedback from the students. So teaching in class, you can, like Stephen said, you can change, you can adjust, you can can feel if something's not working because you can see it. (laughs) With course design, we don't often find out if something's not working until after the fact. So after enough people take the course and they fill out our questionnaire, we find out that maybe something is not quite as it could have been better. And we learn from that. We do have extensive feedback on course design that we collect in online courses. So we have that. If something doesn't work really badly, we find out straight away and we fix it. But then there could be parts that just kind of kind of don't work. So students go through it and they then we don't find out until after. As Stephen said, with online spaces, it has to be perfect because there isn't that immediate feedback. It is kind of a solitary experience for the student. And if tasks are not well described, if the course is not organized and students get lost or disoriented in it, it's not a good experience experience for them. So the thought that goes into the blueprinting planning process, I spent probably most, such a big time planning, such a huge amount of time planning and then looking at the first unit. And after that, I kind of step away and let the creative process happen with uh, subject matter expert writing. But the planning part is huge. And then looking at the first unit and getting all the feedback from all the different people is really key before stepping back. It's true, you know, because I mean, students need to know within a course where everything is, how can they find out where the assessments are? How do they locate the resources? How do they know what they have to read? 
read or watch or listen to. And so that consistency through the course is very important and the clarity of the way that it's laid out and presented. And I think that's a lot where we come in. And so Maria, it's funny you mentioned that because I feel like that's a conversation every time is okay. We're going to take a long time getting the first week or the first unit. We're going to do a lot of back and forth on this until we have kind of a template that we can use moving forward that works for the type of course that this is. And that's often a time-consuming process and a, and a lot of back and forth. And then, yeah, as Marie said, then once people get it, they can go. But I will say, Brennan, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of your post-secondary teaching career, walking in not knowing. In a lot of ways, I think people really appreciate even having someone to work with. It's very collaborative. And I think people really enjoy that. I hope. I'm imagining that that is true. And also that subject matter experts who get to go through the process of doing a development of a course like this learn a lot about assessment design that, you know, they're bringing their own experience, but they're also learning about how the modality shifts. And I think in a lot of ways, folks who had that experience found the experience of the pivot a lot less stressful because they at least had some understanding of what it meant for a student to have to move through course material with less guidance without somebody at the front of the room the whole time. Now, certainly I'm finding more and more, oh, we'll work with subject matter experts who did their PhD online, or they have some experience as a distance learning student. And that experience is huge in terms of informing the way that they want to design courses because they have that experience. And that's something I think that's changing. And I know it's very different being a student <laughs> than, than an instructor, though you, the things that you don't see as a student, I think, you know, most people can, most people who teach or design or write can relate to. But it does make a big difference because they have a better understanding of the online space and what that experience is like. Whereas people who come into it and don't have a lot of experience with online learning generally, it's a bit different. Marie, I want to ask you a bit about sort of the visual aspect of course design, because I know how much work you do in sort of visual design and the field of sort of making information comprehensible in through art is something that you do. And I will say that in my experience as a classroom teacher, that was certainly not something that I had extensive experience in that I kind of always wanted to do like one of those cool like syllabus infographics that you see on, you know, you see them on Twitter at the beginning of September and you're like, well, that's really cool. Uh, but mine is already at the printer and also I'm tired. But I'm thinking about the ways in which the visual experience of learning can be attended to. And I'm wondering if you want to say anything about how you guide students through material from a visual perspective. Well, thank you, Brenna. Yes, that is definitely a topic I'm super interested in. When I work with subject matter experts, and as, as Stephen mentioned, when we are looking at what the students really need to know, what skills they should really have, those big kind of questions, big focus areas that there are for the course, I often encourage subject matter experts to express those really important points in more than one way. We are very textual in academia, the different disciplines have more visual elements. The sciences are actually wonderful for visuality. <laughs> it's good to have a good explanation of a really important focus point in a course and if possible to have to offer other ways to relay that information or practice that skill so that we reach as many learners as possible. We do, as humans, enjoy visual expression. Visual information is everywhere online. So, you know, if there is a concept that can be also explained by a diagram or an infographic or 
a process video H5B element, something that would be more than text. Not that there's anything wrong with narrative. It's just as an addition to it so that that concept is really examined from multiple perspectives and it gives it a different dimension. When there is a visual element, we tend to remember it (laughs) as well. It kind of stands out, especially after we go through a lot of text. So that's what I talk to uh, subject matter experts about. We are very fortunate here in Open Learning. We have very talented artists that work on our course curriculum. That is in video, that is in graphic, that is in multimedia interactive elements that are uh, custom programmed by one of our colleagues as well. So yeah, it can be as simple as a timeline that is more than bullet points, you know, we can interact with it. (laughs) You know, it can be a very kind of uh, complicated graph of a molecule, for example, or some kind of a more complicated ecosystem in which different things are interacting with each other. And just putting it out as a picture can be very powerful. Yeah, Marie, and I'm glad you mentioned, I think it's really important that, I mean, we're very fortunate here that we work with a number of wonderful teams. We have a media team that includes John, who does a lot of video work for us, and Stephanie and Nicole, who do all kinds of either graphic design or they help out building H5P components or you know, using Articulate to build out the visuals, like Marie said. You talked about the permanence earlier, and we have like a wonderful editing team that goes over everything at the end for us. We have a copyright group that helps answer questions so we can't like ah can we use this and they say no <laughs> so they, but then so often provide alternative links or alternative resources for those that i'm so impressed all the time at their ability to dig things up that i don't know we have amazing colleagues we are very fortunate and that is yeah that is to recognize that our colleagues on campus don't have that so especially during the pivot we could have used a copyright team oh my gosh it was my heart was breaking because we know how much work that goes into each of our courses. They're professionally produced courses. And asking faculty members to <laughs> do this, you know, within a couple of weeks, it was just, it's different. So then you have a different type of course than you would when a course goes through our process with our professional teams that support the initiative. So, and also, um, you know, as we were talking, I was thinking about templates. So, so in instructional design, or learning design, there is a predictable kind of process that we like to do. We have a course guide, we have, you know, all the learning outcomes, we align everything through the different content blocks and activity blocks and assessment blocks. We make sure that everything is connected and it works well. We always check that students are understanding, especially in online environments, that important that we do that intentionally because we don't have the immediate feedback that is in the face-to-face environment. So there is some beauty in templates that when the pandemic happened, we shared because it's the fastest way to kind of provide some resource that would be immediately useful and you could use. But we do work with every subject matter expert on a unique structure. Every subject, every course is different. It can have 13 units or modules. It can have three. It can all work. It just needs to be organized in a way that the student can move through confidently and without getting disoriented. So I think when we think about teaching, whether it is on campus or online, it's thinking about structure, but not necessarily a rigid one. What's also very interesting lately we have been talking about, because we do have a very linear approach to learning design, and there we always, I'm curious about nonlinear, different approaches. It's something that always piques my 
curiosity and we try different things. We always try to do different things as well. Wouldn't you say, Steve? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's one of the natures of working with, you know, I just mentioned all the different groups. Um, And so we often talk about having, you know, a more freeing way of working in courses. And sometimes, you know, if it's just one or two people, it's easier to do than when it's dealing with the timelines of a lot of busy people. And so, yeah, it, it does lean towards a more linear design process than sometimes are appropriate or we would like. Yeah, because face-to-face teaching isn't. I, I have been a teacher for a long time as well. And sometimes I feel sad <laughs> that we can't really, <laughs> it's not the same. The two modalities are not the same. <laughs> well, no, and that's a really good point. And I'm glad you guys brought up all the amazing folks we can draw on within open learning, because that is a big difference, right? Between approaching a course on your own, sometimes for the first time, trying to figure out how to cover a whole bunch of content and having a, a, a sort of team and a process already in place. We're, we're pretty much at the end of the time that I asked you to devote <laughs> to this today, and I'm grateful for it. I wondered if as like kind of a closing thought, we might think about difference in the, in the process and the approach and maybe share some things that you think are or would be beneficial to face-to-face instructors when they approach course design. Maybe things that you would impart given the opportunity. I always ask my subject matter experts, once the student finishes the course and a year later, what would you like them to remember? So after they finish the course, what do you think is really going to impact their life? What is going to stick with them? And then that's kind of the focus point of the course. I make sure that that, it echoes through the space. It's not lost. (laughs) Sometimes we, um, we have so much information in those courses that you don't want a gem like that to be cluttered by other things. So what, uh, amongst all the learning outcomes, all of the content that you have to cover, you know, take a few minutes and think about what we would like students remembering a year from the time that they finish your course. One of the big things, particularly now, I mean, not just now, but the last 15 years that people teaching face-to-face have started to incorporate more online tools, and whether that's for use in the classroom space or at home, or within some kind of blended model, to think about the visual design of the online content and to really consider the user experience and how they're going to interact with that. Because I feel so often that that is something that is missed, that here's the content, here is how you access the readings from online or home, or here's additional video work, or here are whatever it may be. But so often it becomes a jumble of resources rather than a real designed experience. And I think that's so important. I think that's something that people can take away from that sort of instructional design way of looking at courses. Yeah. I I really like that because I often think... Oh, you probably see that all the time, Brent. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I the, the analogy I often give to faculty when we're working through something together is like, so on the first day of class, you don't want to just kind of open the door and throw your stack of handouts <laughs> at the I students and then leave, <laughs> which is often what week one of a Moodle shell looks like, right? Because it's just like, here's nine PDFs. Bye. So yeah, I think that's a 
That's a really good point. That And it comes back to that idea of like the visual aspect of learning that Marie was getting at and the need to organize. And that's not just on like an individual activity level. That's like on a making sure that there's kind of a coherence to the appearance of the course. And I think that's a lesson a lot of people learn in the pivot because their Moodle shells went from being a repository space where just like, if you miss class, go get the handouts there, which is, has very different design requirements than like actually having to navigate the space on your own. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, from an LMS perspective, I mean, we have a much more flexible Moodle design than campus instructors have access to. Language helps too, though. So when you organize things, it's like a well-organized storage area. <laughs> and going back to the <laughs> going back to the Lego blocks. So even introducing the learners to the fact that there are going to be some content blocks where they're going to learn and you know some of them are let's say optional and some of them are more important and then the activities and even organizing the space that way will make it more comprehensive to the learner and I think easier for the faculty member too to determine whether the student experience is well balanced it's not too heavy on the passive and it has some active elements in it where the student has the opportunity to actively practice what they're learning so that when they're assessed they had every opportunity to learn about the topic had an opportunity to practice it without the stress of being assessed and well prepared for the assessment and with everything being well aligned. So even if you think about the blocks, the organizing of the learning experience in those ways, it's going to make it easier for the student and less like a repository, like a storage area where there's a whole bunch of files and things that are difficult to make sense for the students. So. This was great. Both of you, thank you so much. I, I, I sent Marie and Stephen a very like come on the podcast kind of uh, email without a lot of context. So I'm really I think we had a really great conversation out of it, and uh, and I'm grateful for your time today. Thank you both. Thank you, Brenna. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> always a pleasure, Brenna. <laughs> So that is it for season three, episode six of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. And I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. In both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip, and it's really more of a tiny self-reflexive tip. I know, I know, I know. But I want you to think about how perception might shape your experiences in the classroom. I remember I used to finish like a really difficult day of teaching (laughs) and my sense of myself would be absolutely in tatters, but finish a great day of teaching and I would feel great. And I'm not sure it's healthy (laughs) for our personal identities to be so transient and so shaped by experience. This is a place I actually found that keeping a journal of my teaching was really helpful because it gave me a space to write about the bad stuff, but also to remember the good stuff and to hopefully give myself at the end of the term a more tempered vision of who I am in the classroom. I don't know if that will work for you, but maybe think about how perception might be shaping how you're feeling about the classroom in this difficult midterm period. Hang on to that. Maybe it's useful. And um, I'll look forward to seeing you next time. Take care of yourselves and each other, and we will talk very soon. Bye-bye.